Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week's guest is another listener request. Listener Paul Underwood asked me to track down somebody from the incredible power pop band from the late 90s, early 2000s, Sugar Bomb. And so this week, we are talking to Michael Harville, drummer for Sugar Bomb. Unfortunately, they were one of these bands that we've covered all too often on this podcast. They put out one album in 1999, independently, called Taste Like Sugar that got a lot of attention. They signed to a major label. They put out their major label debut called Bully that featured this song that you're listening to here called Hello that was starting to get a lot of traction. But two weeks after Bully comes out, RCA, their label, drops them. And that's it. And this experience went on to scar some of the members of the band. Thankfully, not Michael so much. He's really soldiered on, and we talk about that. He still makes a living in music in a lot of different bands. But it didn't end as nicely for some of the other guys, and it's really, really a shame. If you like bands like Fountains of Wayne or Jellyfish especially, that sort of orchestral power pop that's a little bit Queen mixed with the Beatles, mixed with Nirvana, that's what Sugar Bomb is all about. They are incredible. I think you will really love them. And unfortunately, Bully is really all there is. Michael tells some really interesting stories. There's one in here about how he nearly kicked the crap out of Matthew McConaughey twice. And I think a sort of unpleasant story about Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick. It's unfortunate. These guys are great. Not a lot of power pop bands came out of Dallas, but they did. So Michael calls me from his home in Fort Worth, Texas. I'm just gonna kick it off. I do find it interesting that for a band like Sugar Bomb, that most people only know the one album, Bully, right? Right. And it wasn't like even a huge success, no offense. I mean, it was. it's just out there. It's a solid album if people find it. But there seems to be a lot of kind of mythology around this band you know there's a core group of people that are really interested in where did they go and when are they going to reunite and are they okay and why did it turn out so badly and i find that really endearing for a band that you know no offense was kind of a you know a smaller blip on the overall radar but that you made such an impression that there's people who are really passionate about about your band and your music and your life out there I think that's really right. interesting. Do you feel, I mean, how often do you feel that? As a regular guy now, are you faced with sugar bomb fans or mythology or lore or memories on a daily basis, periodically? How does it shake down? Periodically. Oh, first off, I, I, I'm still in music very heavily. Oh, you are? Okay. I'm, yeah, I perform about 200 shows a year. Really? Uh, me and... My brother, who is the guitarist yep. in Sugar Bomb, my my younger brother. Okay. A lot of people back during Sugar Bomb got that backwards. Like a lot of articles and interviews, because he, I guess I have a baby face, so he looks older. Uh, okay. Than, even though I'm four four <laughs> years older than him, but it's even in okay. front, you know. <laughs> After Sugar Bomb happened, we got scooped up by a real uh, successful cover band in the southern region of the United States, and and we've been you know in in that same band you know for 15 years um, really and we stay busy and we make our living doing music 
you know, we did other things as well after Sugar Bomb because I was kind of the founding member and the band manager and the band leader guy until we got okay. real management. And then sure. I still was kind of the, the band leader. I, I was kind of the one that, you know, did all the marketing and approached all the record labels and management companies because I wanted my, my brother and Wes, who were the main songwriters, I wanted them to uh-huh. focus on the music and don't they didn't need to be bothered by that stuff. And I'm kind of feel like that's one of my strong points, so I took that on. So after the end of Sugar Bomb, I started managing bands and had a management company. It also turned into a record label. It also turned into a concert production and promotion company. Really? It even gets crazier than that. I'm endorsed by Yamaha as a drummer, so okay. back then I was going back and forth to Japan, teaching some drum clinics and learning Japanese, uh, closed up my management company, just kind of shut it down. I was just getting burned out on the original music and the music industry itself. Because during that time, and this sure. was one of the things that killed Sugar Bomb was we were in that turnover when everything was going digital and nobody knew what yeah what was happening. Yep. Nobody knew. Yep, you guys were right there. I mean, yeah, we were right in the middle of all that. You know, I was managing a band called Trip Fontaine who, who did fairly well and they finally got signed and the singer decided to quit and I just kind of said, that's it. And I went back to school at that point, finished my degree, and then I moved to Tokyo, Japan, and I was doing music uh-huh. there for five oh. years. And I just moved back here uh, three years ago. And where's here? You're uh, in Texas, right? In, in Dallas, yeah, where okay. Sugar Bomb is, was based. That's what I thought, yeah. In the Dallas-Fort okay. Worth area. And yeah. my brother and I are really close, and of course we play in the cover bands together. Yeah. And then we're also really close with Les, so the three of us are still really close. You know, we talk, you know, every day. Okay. Pretty much. Let's save Les for a little bit later, because I, I, I have a feeling there's a story there, but I don't want to derail from your story real quick. So you primarily make a living today from doing this really successful cover band? Correct, yeah. Okay. Now there is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, because... Your your band is a little difficult to Google because isn't there a a covers band out of Austin called Sugar Bomb, Sugar Space Bomb? Every time I Google Sugar Bomb, one word, it comes up. I get Sugar Space Bomb, an '80s cover band out of Austin, and it, and I knew you were from Texas, huh. so I was getting so confused. Like I don't think this is the no, right that thing. Has anyway, nothing to do with that. okay, no. nothing to do with you. Okay, that's what I thought. Okay, well, that's really interesting. So what kind of, what's the name of your band? How often do you play? What do you cover? Okay, well, I'm actually in a total of four different cover bands, but they're the same members, and they're just okay. different genres. We just do different genres. Got it, yeah. The main one is a, it's a disco cover band called La Freak, and we all wear big afros and bell bottoms. Nice. And play disco music, and it's been, it just had its 20th year anniversary this year. Wow. And Wow. It's been going for a long time. And then pre Sugar Bomb. That, it started in yeah, it started in ninety six and Sugar Bomb started in ninety seven. Wow. Okay. So we started around the same time. And they were fans of Sugar Bomb. Whenever they didn't have a show, they'd come out and see us if they could. Um the, the members that we eventually replaced. Yeah. Um and the singer who's the only original member of, of that band. But then we do two others that are um eighties retro 
Okay. And then a new one that we started last summer called the Windbreakers, and it's all yacht rock. Oh, yacht rock. nice. Kenny yes. Oh, yeah, it's really great music stuff. I love that. I love it. And, you know, yes, there you go. There you go. Um, yeah, and, and uh, dressed like a boat captain, we wear, like, you know, yacht clothes. And, Killer. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And you're the drummer yeah, for yeah, all of these bands? Drummer and singer. Um, really? I didn't know you were a singer, too. Songs. Okay. Yeah, that was the thing about Sugar Bomb was we were all also singers. We were okay. All singers on our own, right? And in fact, when Sugar Bomb formed, nobody wanted to be the lead singer. I had to force Les to do it. He didn't want to do it. Nobody <laughs> wanted to. And so I kind of forced it and said, look, you and my brother, you know, you two are the lead singers. My brother used to sing almost as much as Les, but then RCA had this theory that you couldn't yeah. market a new band with two singers. So. Interesting. Okay. Well, that's good. So you've stayed in music in one form or another this whole time. What's your outlet for dabbling in original stuff? Are you in a fifth band that, or do you just create on your own? Or how, how do you, um, what's the outlet for it? Well, I've played with a few friends that have original bands that, you know, need a drummer and I'll just go and kind of, you know, get a little bit of creative satisfaction doing that. And then, and those are kind of come and gone. And then, um, I'm working on some original material myself that, you know, I just work on at home. Great. I have a little home studio. And, and then with my brothers, and it's not just my younger brother, Daniel, I also have a younger brother than him, oh. Aaron, who's a bassist. He just released an album that he wrote and sings lead and plays bass on. And his oh, new band is called Fear the Radio, and it just came out like a couple months ago. Oh, good. Oh, that's good. And Fans of Sugar Bomb like thing, it's, it's it's funny because a lot of people they because Les was the lead singer they they think kind of our sound came specifically from him. Uh-huh. And now that my younger brother, um, you know, just came out with another album, there people right. are kind of starting to go, oh, I get it now. It's yeah, it's a combination of the horrible boy sure. and Les. You know, Sugar Bomb kind of started. If if you don't mind me going back. Yeah. No. Yeah. Let's hear it. Me and my two younger brothers had a band called Nimbus the Brave with another singer.
ready to sign a, a, a record deal, and my youngest brother and the lead singer both got their girlfriends pregnant. And oh no! And oh boy! Kind of left me and my brother Daniel just standing there like, okay. My brother Daniel kind of recluse, and I did the opposite. I went out and just started playing in a bunch of different bands, mm-hmm. which led to me meeting the first bass player for Sugarbomb, which actually our first when we first formed, we were called Starbelly. Okay. Dr. Seuss. <laughs> and so this guy, who was the first bass player, Mark, he introduced me to Greg. And when he did that, I drugged my brother over to Greg's house. I said, come on, don't make me go by myself. Let's go over there. And so we were showing Greg, you know, some of the stuff we had done with Nimbus. And then Greg was showing us stuff. He was the other guitarist in Sugarbomb. He was showing us stuff that him and Les had done. And and I was just like, hey, you need to bring this guy the next time we get together. Him and Les grew up together. And, of course, me and my brother grew up together. And so it was kind of me and my brother Daniel meeting Les and Greg and those four of us coming together. Okay. And then we went through, like, three different bass players from the entire thing. Fascinating. You know, the problems with bass players. Yeah. But, yeah, no um, kidding. That comes up in your story. Let me let me interrupt for one second. So you, the uh, what was the name of the other band that you said? Nimbus the Great. That's it. So you guys, that band, were about to sign a record deal, did you say? Yeah, we had gotten management. Who were you going to sign with? Sign what record deal, I mean? Really? Warner. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So whoever this band was, I mean, I don't mean to... I don't mean to get hung up on this, but, I mean, that's a big deal. I mean, there are millions of bands out there wishing they could get signed, even today when that doesn't mean as much as it used to. Right. You're in a band in Fort Worth that is having that is good enough and having enough success locally that there's a label that wants to sign you. So I just think yeah. that's interesting because I think that tells a story that we're talking about very professional focused musicians here. You know what I'm saying? We're talking about people who are on the path to success versus sort of, you know, came from nowhere. Not that you didn't do that, but I just find that really interesting that you had that already kind of in your back pocket heading that direction. uh, Maybe I should go a little bit further back. We were born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee, and our father was a musician who he was in B.B. King's band and Friends of Elvis. Oh, he did that whole scene in Memphis back, you know, in the day. Well, then he kind of gave up music, you know, for the family. He had four boys. I have an older sure. brother, too. Okay. My older brother is the only one that's not a musician. Okay. And so, based on kind of what you're talking about, I, it was already kind of in our blood, you know. Got it. That makes sense. It. Okay. We started music's what you were going to do no matter what, most likely, it sounds oh, like. Oh, I knew it. I knew that yeah. I was doing music when okay. I was. Okay. As long as I can remember, that's all I wanted to do. Sure. Okay, and that makes a lot of sense. I started off you know, on piano you know, when I was eight years old, then I became a singer. And My mother was from Fort Worth. My father was from Memphis. So, well, I guess it was around when I was 17, we all moved to Fort Worth. Then my father left my mother and went back to Memphis. Oh. <clears throat> and I went back to Memphis because I wanted to finish high school with my friends. I went back to finish high school. Sure. Then I came back to Fort Worth, and my two younger brothers, now at this point I'm 18, 19, just, just about 19, and they were still 15 and 13. It sounds like they're replacements. So they were it's playing Vincent. guitar, you know. Yeah, Daniel was playing guitar, and Aaron was playing bass, and, and I was kind of like, well, I had a, just by a happenstance, the bass player in my band had 
sold me a cheap drum set, and I was like, hey, you know, this would be something fun for me to do with my little brothers, but they're too young to be in a real band with. And I would still consider myself mainly a lead singer. So I was looking for a new band to, to front, and as they got older and we all got better <laughs> at our instruments, that led to the formation of Nimbus. And something else that happened in the end of Nimbus, our father uh, killed himself. He tried to get back into music, and he couldn't. He was you know, too too long out of it, and so he. The, uh, you don't have to talk about this if you don't want to. Was there? I mean, along with being a musician, often comes alcoholism, drug problems. Was that in his makeup no, as well? No, he just had mental problems. Oh, that sucks. Did that have anything to do with leaving Memphis? Potentially, maybe leaving a musical career to move to Fort Worth and getting unhappy, and did that have anything yeah, to do with I mean, it? I don't know, I think. I mean, for me, I always, I know that I cannot not do music, right? I yeah. would just go insane. It's, yeah. Because, I mean, it really is like giving up your identity, you know? Sure. And I've had friends that have done it, and I, I've worried about my youngest brother. He got married and had kids, and we, so my brother Daniel and I, we, we pretty much, you know, we haven't had kids and we've stayed doing music. We've never stopped. But I've had friends that have gotten out of it, but they always, my youngest brother, he's always kept a foot in it, you know, yeah. uh, as long yeah. as he still had an outlet, you know. But when you try to quit cold turkey and try to, you know, go and have a family in a, in a normal life, as yeah. they say, and, yeah. you know, a lot of guys don't handle it. They can't because it pulls you back. And he definitely was, a, you know, manic depressive and paranoid schizophrenic and, he just okay. kind of mentally deteriorated over a point of about seven years. And okay. That, but, you know, that I think was the big motivator for me because he was telling me, don't do music, don't do music. And that all that did was make me want to really? do more for him, you know. Wow. In hindsight, do you can you see why he would have advised you to do that? I mean, was there, I'm not saying you're suicidal, but has it, have the lows, the highs been high, so high and the lows been so low that you've wondered that yourself over these last 20 years? No. I or are you so, you're dedicated, the the lows come with this territory that you're not giving up? Right. I mean, okay. to me, I mean, I, I don't have any regrets and wouldn't change a thing, you know, it's, the experiences I've had are priceless. You know, I've been all yeah. over the world. I've been over 35 countries, and most of them several times. I speak Japanese. I have an apartment in Japan. I mean, you do when I go back there. Yeah, and I've, you know, and because I speak Japanese, I've tour man. You know, I've worked on tours with Aerosmith, and Amazing Race, and really, and, and I took a, uh, a Japanese band um, called Tokyo Scott Paradise, which are really huge in Japan. I took them on a European tour. We did 11 country as their, as their tour manager. And, and, you know, and I was doing all right in Japan, you know, you know, doing music and translating and, you know, and stuff like that until the earthquake and tsunami happened. I was there yeah. during the earthquake and thought that was it. But after that, it got really tough and I decided to, to come back. They went into a recession and it, it's just really yeah. tough to, to make a living doing music in, in Japan right now. Okay. They like their yeah. Yacht Rock, though. Do you do the Yacht Rock thing over there? 
No, I haven't. Uh, oh, really? I've always heard that, like, Asia is particularly open to Yacht Rock still being cool and still being good. And, you know, a lot of those bands like Toto and Bertie Higgins. They, and these they people do that, like Toto. And, and in fact, once you mentioned earlier, I, I became friends with um, Simon Phillips while I was in Japan. Really? Who, yeah, who played drums for Toto. Um, oh. On their last big tour. And um, in fact, I was bartending. I, I bartended there to supplement my income. Sure. And uh, he'd come into my bar and I'd, I'd put him behind my bar and make him make me drink, you know, and just talk about yeah. him. Sweet guy. Cool. And probably, I mean, one of the top five drummers in the world. Yeah, totally. Um, so that oh, was what you mentioned earlier, like meeting, meeting, you know, one of my heroes. Yeah. That was post Sugar Bomb, you know, but yeah, but it was kind of a result of Sugar Bomb because it wasn't for That's Sugar great. Bomb, you know. Even though we fell out, it opened so many doors for us to traveling the world and, and getting to and that led to learning Japanese and living in Japan, and having all these experiences. You know. That's amazing. Good for you. So let's get to Sugar Bomb here. Part of the again going back to the mythology that I was talking about, you know, every article you ever read about you guys is that. Your album was coming out two weeks after 9-11, and then two weeks after that, you were dropped by RCA, out of the blue. Yeah. And apparently, you guys were a certain kind of band, and then they wanted you to become more, I don't know, radio-friendly or dial it down to be more, you know, easier to swallow for mass consumers. And you well, kind of went along yeah, with it, and then they end up dropping you anyway. Do I have all this right? I mean, that's the folklore. Is that true? Mm, yes and no. We had worked on this album, you know, with Mark Ender um, for a, a good year. In fact, the story goes, when we first signed to RCA, they had us writing for, you know, almost a year. We had Mark Ender come in, and, well, our A&R guy approached Mark Ender, the producer, and asked him, you know, if he was interested in producing Sugar Bomb, and he said he, he loved it, but he couldn't because he was working on something with Madonna at the time. So during that time, we're, they're just like, we need more hit songs, more hit songs. This one's too fast, too slow, too happy, too sad. Yeah. You know? And we're just writing songs and spitting them out. And then a year goes by, Mark Ender finishes his project with Madonna. He comes back to the A&R guy, and he asks him, so who wound up producing that Sugar Bomb album band, you know? Uh -huh. he said, well, we haven't even started yet. You know, they don't have enough hit songs. And Mark Ender said, are you crazy? I got yeah. tons of hit songs. And so he said, really? You think so? And he's, he's like, yeah. And so he said, all right, well, do you want to produce them? He said, yeah. So we finally go get start, you know, working on, on Bully. And we're in the studio, you know, for a year, different studios, best studios, you know, out in L.A. And yeah. And we get that all done, and, you know, and then all the hype's going, and then single comes out hello and it hello it was the second most added song to radio that year to more wow. radio stations i think behind That's you great. was number one and we did a radio station tour we did 90 stations in 36 days what I mean, whoa I forget, like i would forget what city i was in you know well, the did hello chart i mean was that like a oh yeah i don't know if the, yeah, but it, remember. so was it like a top four i don't know if that was even a Thing anymore. They went in top 40. Like they went in top 40. Okay. Good. Categories. Um, okay. And it was in the movie, the movie Orange County, and the movie Van Wilder. 
Yep. But it's not on the Van Wilder soundtrack, I don't believe. I was just looking that up. No, it's on the Orange County soundtrack, but not on the Van Wilder. Okay, okay. I can't remember the reason. I think it was like a last-minute ad or something they couldn't oh, get it. Oh, okay. Uh, there was some kind of technical reason why it wasn't yeah. going on the soundtrack. But the problem with the label and the sound, you know, there was always kind of a push and pull, you know. Ultimately, what it came down to was our live show versus uh-huh. the album sound. Uh-huh. You know, it's like you hear it all the time. We go, oh, well, it uh, didn't sound like the album or sounds better than yeah. the album. Well, ours was kind of more of we did this super high-energy show. Uh-huh. And, I mean, the RCA marketing department actually wanted to market us to adult contemporary because of the way the album sound, they thought it was, you know, more chill, I guess. And when they really? actually went and, and played for them, they were all having a conference at South by Southwest. We went down and played a show for them, and all hell broke loose. Really so, nice. we gotta, we got to figure out how we're going to market this, because their show is all alt-rock, high energy, but their sound is pop, adult, contemporary, you know. once they saw us live, so it was kind of like, well, it all yeah. went south anyway. But in the way that happened, I actually caught wind of it first because we were getting ready to shoot the music video for Hello. Yes, and that was my all the directors, Right, all the directors that were, you know, bidding for it had to send in their storyboards and, and everything by a certain date. Well... Through my ex-girlfriend, I had met this Japanese director, Muto Masashi, and he was real famous in Japan. And he wanted to shoot the video in, in Tokyo. And oh. so I was kind of rooting for him. You know, I, I was already speaking a little Japanese at this point, you know. And so I called his assistant in L.A. to make sure he got the stuff sent in to RCA on, on time. And he said, yeah, I sent it in. And I called them to see if they got it. And they said that you're your budget had been pulled for the music video. And I was like, what? And they said, yeah, they also said they're pulling your touring budget. And we had been on the road, you know, really beating the streets for a while. You know, we were on tour with Cheap Trick and Eat Six and, you know, jumping on tours, Dave Matthews. We got kicked off Dave Matthews' tour. um, You got Dave kicked off Dave Matthews? Yeah. Why? Well, because we overplayed with... Usually they had a uh, stage manager to tell us when to stop. Yeah. So we're sitting there playing, and I got you know twenty thousand people screaming one more song, one more song. And we, yeah. 
you know, they're looking at me, what do we do? And I'm like, well, let's play one more song. I can't, I don't, I'm not finding, <laughs> I don't see any stage manager. Nobody's telling us to stop. Right, right. Know, what are you going to do, you know? So yeah. We played a couple more songs, and then this, I think, I don't know if it was the stage manager, but tour, his tour manager showed up. He was yelling at my bass player. He was always stoned. And <laughs> he was just kind of smiling. And I was like, what's, what's up, man? He's like, Mr. Matthews is not happy. And I was like, well, where's your stage manager? You know? And so then, of course, they go and contact our management. Our manager calls me, and I'm telling them what happened. And they're like, well, they kicked us off the tour. So I'm like, well, you know. Wow. It, you know, some stupid little thing like that. Diva, you know? diva behavior, if you ask me. So there was never a video. Because I've been trying to Google that. I don't see a professional. No, no. Uh, that is so weird. That's, that's my one biggest thing that I regret is that we never got to shoot a video. No kidding. <laughs> and um, it was just timing. So I called my manager immediately and told him what I found out. He calls RCA. RCA says, yeah, we're, we're pulling the budget. This is what he told me. But now I've heard different conspiracy theories, you know, uh-huh. with my old management, and, you know, who knows? I don't know what to believe anymore, but according to him, they said they were thinking about dropping the band. He got on a plane immediately, and this was like on a Friday, flew up to New York. He brought in all this uh, reports, you know, showing that we had a hit song, and they were like, well, we were unaware of this. Give us a weekend to think about it. Come back on Monday, and we'll, you know, talk about it again. So he stayed over the weekend in New York, went back on Monday. They said they still that they're going to drop the band and they offered him a job. <laughs> so no way. Really? He actually became their regional marketing guy. No way. In Texas after that. And uh, oh. for, for like a year or so, but he, yeah. And he still manages bands to this day. I mean, huh? Uh, that, that management, I saw you, inter- you interviewed Todd from people or something. It's, that, that yes. was their manager back in the day. Oh, interesting. Okay. I wondered if you guys were connected somewhere. They also managed Bowling for Soup and... There you go. Blue October. Okay, sure. Which I tour managed Blue October when they were in Japan also. You're going to have to walk me through this because... So we should establish for people who are unaware. You released an independent album called Tastes Like Sugar in 1999, right? Sugar Bond.
is really hard to find, by the way. I have not heard it because it's not on any streaming services, and it costs $47 used on Amazon. And I like you guys, but 47 bucks is a lot to part with for a CD. Hey, you know what I mean? I'll shoot you a copy, no problem. Oh, <laughs> that's nice. Thank you. So there's, you know, there's some. You know, we started working on a third album, and I even have a few tracks off of that. Ooh, nice. Nice. We're really good because we were in I really good it. shape as a band at that point. I walk out of church on Sunday, all forgiven, every sin. I punch in at work on Monday because the coffee that burns my lips. I drive to the writing for your studio for your touring for you know a few years yeah and we went back into work on this third album and you know there were really great songs too and that we had signed with Lava Atlantic and we were starting to work on because RCA after they dropped this well we actually went out and we did a showcase at the Roxy in LA for 12 labels <laughs> which is almost unheard of I mean labels yeah. don't like to get in that kind of a situation and they sure. get, it causes them to get into a bidding war but RCA had such a high price tag because you know one label when they go and buy when they go and find a band they they buy that band's catalog from whatever right. label they don't want to you know put out a new album and do all this marketing and the other label is benefiting from it you know because they have the previous album uh-huh. so we you know we had spent one and a half million at this point on Bullet oh my god and they had such a high price tag on it. None of the other labels wanted to touch it. Right. Except Live Atlantic back then. They said, you know what? Screw it. We don't care. They can keep it. We're just going to do a new album. We've got plenty of material. But then they were actually going through a split. And uh, so we started working on the album. Then they stopped us and said, hold on. Wait till we get the split done and we you know, rebuild our marketing team. And during that time... Um, we, that's when we broke up. I think we were all just beat up yeah. at that point. Yeah. Unless, you know, for several reasons, you know, with Sugar Bomb, I mean, it's a tragic story. I mean, timing was a, probably the biggest thing, you know, with 9-11 happened and the digital sure. turnover happening. But at the bottom of that, too, Les wasn't really handling the pressure real well. Yeah. Um, it's just a lot of pressure when, you know, especially being the front man, and somebody's invested that kind of money in you. Right. It's a lot of, a lot of pressure. <laughs> yeah. I want to understand this drop from RCA thing, and then I want to get to less, because like I said, I know there's a big story there. So the, the, the reason I brought that up before about the independent album is because I find it interesting that you guys put out an album independently that a major label thought was good enough that they wanted you to come work for them. We want these guys with us. But then we don't want them the way they are. We want them to change. 
that never makes sense to me. I don't think that makes sense to anybody. Why you would go to, through the trouble of, you know, signing this band that you think is so great only to expect them to be somebody else. Why do that, right? What, why make the investment? Well, I don't do think you have any kind of insight changed. on that? I don't think that they change us that much. I mean, there, there was subtle things. Um, okay, that's what all yeah, the articles I read say, you know? Yeah, I I wouldn't say that. I mean, I think we we kept our general sound. You know, we didn't okay. change from folk to metal. I mean, it was sure, sure. If there was anything that was very, you know, a lot of a lot of people I say, I mean, they'll say, well, the Taste Like Sugar album, you know, it's they like it better. It sounds and it's you know less polished. Well, of course, we did that album yeah. in three months with. With thirty thousand dollars, you know, in Little Rock, Arkansas, in, in somebody's garage studio, you know, and so it's right. going to have that dirtier sound, you know. It's just not going to sound as polished versus a one and a half million dollar album with right. one of the top producers in the world, you know, yeah. in the best studios in the world, you know. Right. I mean, so here's a uh, one funny story, you know, when I was tracking drums and the A and R guy was in the studio and I think we were playing. Uh, a song called Clover, which is sure. pretty up tempo, and, and it's, you know the whole kick pattern is pretty pretty fast. I was on top of it. He was kind of griping at me and saying, you know, you did fine in pre-production. What's the problem? You know, and he threatened me, you know, he said, I've got this guy, you know, I'm paying $3,000 a day for this studio. He's like, I've got this guy, you know, Kenny Arnoff that I can bring in here and he'll knock it out in in a couple hours. (laughs) So the the funny thing about that story is Kenny and I became really good friends later. Really? It's one of the greatest drummers ever, by the way. Yeah, and we're still friends yeah. to this day. Um, Good. That we we met out at a club one night, and me and met Kenny, and we're hanging out, and then two other really great drummers came in. Okay. And I was kind of in in heaven because I was hanging out with these famous drummers that I had grown up listening to. You know. Sure. Well, he didn't have a car. I lived in L.A. at the time, so I I drove him back to this hotel. Two weeks later, exactly two weeks later. We're checking into a hotel at like four in the morning in New York, and the elevator opens, and Kenny's standing there. And he just looks at me like, Mike? And I'm like, uh-huh. Kenny? After that, that was it. We were friends, you know. And then, um, really? Yeah, and so we kept in touch whenever he would come. And I moved back to Dallas after that when he would come back into town. I'd go, and like he was playing with Joe Cocker, and I'd go and. He'd give me backstage yeah. passes, and I'd take him out afterwards. And 
I've got some good photos of him, you know, like cool. sitting between a soda machine, charging his phone, you know, at a, a Mexican restaurant, you know, at four in the morning. And then later on, of course, when I was in Tokyo, and he was in he was in Tokyo, and I met up with him there several times and hung out, and I actually almost got to sub for him. He was subbing for one of Chad Smith's other bands, so we were hanging out, and they they were supposed to be back in Japan two weeks later doing a show, and they had that same drummer that I can't remember his name. Uh huh. He was the drummer for the Colts. I don't remember either. Um, Looking it up right now. They were waiting to hear back if he could do the gig or not. Matt Sorum? Well, if he can't, Matt Sorum. That's who it was. When I met met Kenny, it was was Kenny and the drummer for White Zombie, John, and his last name's real Italian. I can never remember it. And and they said, well, I wonder where Matt is. And and I'm like, Matt? They're like, yeah, Matt Sorum was supposed to be here. He finally got there, but that was the night I met Kenny. So, yeah, they were waiting to hear back if Matt could could do that, could fill in. Uh-huh. And Kenny was like, well, if you can't, Michael do it. Mike's right here, you know. And I was just like, awesome. <laughs> you know, but, of course, Matt was able to do it. But I was like, man. Uh, too bad. So close. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Would have made a great story, you know. Yeah, no kidding. So part of the legend then going back to Bully is, and, again, this is everything I'm reading, you know, because I'm trying to find this out after the fact. You guys wrote Hello as a response to them telling you to dumb your sound down. And so it was like, you want to see well, how dumb true. we can make it? Let's do it. Because <laughs> that is true. a killer song, though. And I feel stupid for loving that song. If that no, was you guys just do trying to be dumb, you know? Well, you know, that's the thing about a lot of artists. I mean, it's always the one you write that when you're not trying that becomes the big hit and everything, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's holding yourself back. And at that point, you know, we were still you know, fairly young. I mean, I, I was in my late 20s, and Les was in his mid to late 30s, I think. My brother was in his mid-20s, and, you know, when we wrote that stuff, I mean, I think now we've come full circle to where we can find the beauty in simplicity but you have to go through that, and and at some point, you know, you have to hold yourself back because to be, I think, for to have mass appreciation of your art, uh-huh. you know. Uh-huh. Um, but you know, we just say it's very easy to play over people's heads. Yeah. Non-musicians, because that's what we admire. The bands that we look up to are, you know, as we grow as musicians, we get better. You know, then we still are constantly challenging ourselves and admiring more complicated, you know, pieces of work. You know, the bands, all the bands that influenced Sugarbomb just were more, were more like that. I mean, yeah. you know, I'd say we were, you know, for my brother and I, you know, it was more XTC and Oingo Boingo, Jellyfish, of course. There you go. The Fix. Yeah.
jellyfish comes you know, up a lot. Yeah. Right, and um, you know, squeeze, and these these these, these there you go. modern day Mozart. Uh, you're speaking my language on all those bands. Yeah, for sure. And um, and so then, you know, but back then we're talking about that. That was right after the time of Nirvana, which Nirvana is brilliant in its simplicity, but uh-huh. you know that's you know that's we we weren't that. You know, yeah, we were doing yeah. these crazy harmonies, stair-stepping harmonies, and crazy chord progressions, and you know, crazy melodies and crazy arrangements. Uh-huh. And I mean, I, I did my best to hold the guys back. That was so the more complicated Sugarbomb songs were our held back versions until I'd say, oh, okay. yeah, when when RCA got involved and they were doing that. You know, they mm-hmm. did want dumb hit song. Yeah, that, that seems weird to me. Several okay. songs were a result of that, you know. And this is the way the music industry was then, which is different now. But back then, you know, right. they have the keys to the kingdom, and it's kind of like, well, you gotta, you know, you gotta do yeah. your little you gotta do what they donation. Say. Sure. And then once you, you know, and even when I managed bands, I told them the same thing, and they were writing these really eclectic, complicated songs, and I'm like, guys, please, let's just make some money first and get it yeah. first, then you can do whatever you want. Right, right. You know. Yeah, um, makes sense. I don't know. I mean, I listen to Bully, and I'm reminded of bands like Jellyfish, and of course, they only lasted two albums and became more of like a cult band than anything else. I think Jason Faulkner is still out there doing his thing a little bit. Yeah. But I'm right. also thinking I became, of... I became friends with Jason as well, actually. Did you really? I had a feeling. To, yeah, he was supposed to... Um, Review Bully. I don't know if he ever did, but he had been contacted by someone to, to review it. And, and another band that comes to mind is like Fountains of Wayne. Are you alone now? Did you lose the monkey? He gave you black eggs, and now you I wondered about that because I'm just thinking of the the really great power pop leaning bands of that you know mid '90s to early 2000s period, which you know power pop was not the it was if anything it was sort of more disrespected back then than it is now. Thanks to bands like Cheap Trick sort of continuing on doing what they do so well, it's kind of rising raising the profile, but. You'd have like a Matthew Sweet or something like that back then. Oh, yeah. uh, you're just as good. I mean, those are, I'm mentioning these bands because they're they're shades of what you guys were doing in these bands, and they're still around, or they lasted longer than Sugar Bomb. You got you're just as good. I don't know if it was RCA's fault or it was the band breaking up or what the ultimate reason was, but there should be 
plenty left in the tank of from sugar bomb to put out into this world. It's not there. We don't know it. You you can answer that for me. I mean, is there, or did you guys really kind of run your course? No, there there is. And, in fact, I've been pushing for a reunion, and if not a reunion, then a, a new project. Okay. Um, now, my brother and Les are both what you would say, you know, very the typical eclectic, you know, art artist. Uh huh. They're very introverted, pessimistic to a degree. Got uh, it. Negative, you know. Yeah. I was always kind of the positive driving force, and it kept them kind of the glue that stuck it together, you know. Yeah. And I'm trying to be that again, you know. Close with, with less again. It's very sad. I mean that. A lot of people will even say that about my brother and I doing cover band things, but for us, you know, it's a way to make make a living. But Les, you know, wound up playing what we called it the piano man gig, and he would go and play a piano in a very yeah. nice steakhouse. And it was really cool because you could go in the, the top of the piano with marble, and you could sit at the piano and have your dinner and listen to Les serenade Oh, interesting. You, you know? Okay. And he did that. Since the so end his primary bomb. job all this time has been to play piano in the steakhouse. Yes, which was such a waste of talent, you know. Um, Yeah, I mean, no disrespect to, you know, piano players in steakhouses, but I listen to a guy like Les, and I just think, I I would think he could and should do more, do better, do, you know, could do more. He's nothing short of a musical genius. I mean, he really is. He is Freddie Mercury reincarnated. I mean, yes. His, his understanding of music is off the charts. So is he doing you know, this by choice, or is he having you know emotional problems? I don't want to speak well, out of turn. You, like I said, you tell me if this is if I'm going in the wrong. No, no, no. no. He, no, not at all. I mean, um, okay. I think it's it's not so personal as you think. I think it's just that we really had the rug pulled out from us. Yeah. After just working our butts off, you know. I mean, and we gave up everything. We put all our eggs in that basket just to have it, you know, the rug pulled out from us. I mean, yeah. I went from living in, you know, L.A. and, and hanging out, celebrities having hits on, getting recognized. Wherever I went, I had, you know, I was signing autographs, yeah. you know, we're on tours, on the radio, and went from that to sleeping on my buddy's couch in Fort Worth, Texas, you know, in oh, a matter wow. of months. Yeah. It happened yeah. that fast. So I had to completely start over, you know, and I'd have yeah. my – friends take me to the train station and I'd take the train to my other friend's rehearsal studio and he'd let me play his drums so I could learn I mean let me use his rehearsal space so I could learn these disco songs so I could go oh, play wow. in this cover band yeah. and once I started doing that I, I saved up enough money to get my own car and you know all this stuff so yeah it was building it all back up again rebuild it all back up because I mean before that it works you know at a civil engineering company I'd never not had a wow. paycheck in my life. And, you know, when we got signed to RCA and my manager told me, okay, you know, quit your job. And I was like, uh, what? I've never yeah. not had a job. Hold on a second. You know, I mean, it was just such, and, and not just the, the financial side, the emotional side, because when you That's the put big yourself one, yeah. out there, you know, as an artist, you know, and especially as a, as a songwriter and, and, and you're, and a singer-songwriter, you know, 
I mean, you really it takes a lot of guts. You know, you're putting yourself out yeah, there. So emotionally, totally. too, it was just a real, you know, kick in the gut and and a lot a loss of faith in the system. You know, yeah. and, and like I said, that was also even to this point, I don't know what the industry is anymore. I, I mean, I don't know if anyone does. You know, yeah. Mean, now it's just kind of this thing. Yeah. You go and do an album, and you. Or do some songs and put them online for download or whatever, you know. Yeah, yep. Um, it's yep. just changed so much. So I think what we what we talk about now and what I tell them is like, let's not think about that. Let's do it because right. it's what we do. So it's what's holding you back. Because I got to throw this out. So the the listener who asked me to track you down, his name's Paul Underwood, and he lives in Texas too. I'm, I don't know him personally, but he's a listener, and I know he lives there. And he had mentioned that he went to a I guess you guys reunited for an acoustic show. I don't know when this was. I'm assuming within the last few years. And at that show, you guys intimated that there would be more to come, possibly, you know, I don't know, a more longer-lasting reunion or maybe another album or something like that. But that, as of yet, nothing's ever come of that. So well, is it that, is it yeah, less than your brother, Daniel, that are sort of pumping the brakes on that? So our old manager... His old band was called For Reasons Unknown back in the 80s. They had won an MTV Make Your Own Music Video contest, and they run a, won oh. a record deal. They were reuniting for a night because one of the ma- members got diagnosed with can- cancer. Mm. So our manager, and he was the singer, one of the singers in that band, a keyboardist, I think, they were doing this reunite, you know, this benefit show, and they asked, Less to come and play a few songs. Just so happened by accident, my brother and I had the night off. So I said, well, let's go down there. So yeah. we went down there. Well, having me and my brother and Les at the show, he and our manager said, all right, well, let's get the Harvilles up here and and Les to, to play some songs. So we got it and we played a couple of songs, totally impromptu, you know. But got us excited, got Les and Daniel excited. And I was, I was like, okay, this is great, you know. So I talked to him like, you know, we should really, you know, do this. And then another yeah. opportunity came up. It was another benefit for another local musician that had, had health problems. The promoters had called me and asked if we would be interested in coming and doing a, a, an acoustic set. And I asked Daniel and Les, and like I said, they were excited because of the reaction that we had gotten sure. by the improv, impromptu thing. So I said, all right, well, let's let's go do it. And so we did, and um, actually had a bunch of Sugar Bomb fans show up. Um, we played like three or four songs. We had the bass player for Bowling for Soup uh, nice. fill in on bass. After that, I felt great about it. Yeah. Something about it rubbed less the wrong way, and he kind of diverted back really? from it, you know, this kind of, eh, it's, eh, it's pointless. Nobody really wants to hear it. You know, and I was like, that's not true. Yeah. You know? And first yeah. off, secondly, let's not do it for that reason. Let's do it because yeah, we we work well together and we make right. you know beautiful things together. So that's kind of where we're mm. at now. So okay, um, you know, you mentioned you we know, you know we talked about how neither of us know what the state of the the business is right now, and no one really does. But one thing is for sure that an independent artist, as long as they don't have financial expectations, can do whatever they want in terms of. Right making their own music and distributing it however they want to do it. And it sounds right. like 
guys as talented as the three of you, however many, could and should do that just for your own peace of mind. You know what I mean? That's right. So, I mean, That's I don't know right. less at all, but it sounds like he would he would totally get off on that. And there's enough people who would even care about him with an acoustic guitar in his hands to just record a few ditties that he's writing, that he's working on, and, I don't know, put them on a Facebook page or something. Get some response that way. I mean, again, if we're we're not going to be millionaires, but you can right. satiate the people who care about you and your own creative virtues really easily today, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and that's one thing, you know, that had happened recently, too, is that, you know, he used to be in a band called uh, Joey C. Jones and the Glory Hound okay. um, back in the 80s. Jones, the singer, and uh, he had recently contacted Les, but one thing that he had said was, you know, that he basically told Les that you're being selfish, not sharing your your ability, you know, with the people, you know. But, you know, I, I think now with Les lose, you know, losing his steady gig, and yeah. you know, we'll, we'll see what's happening. We're still talking, and Maybe he you know, just has some serious PTSD when it comes to Music in general, any kind, not the, not even a major label. Yeah, but yeah, you know, I don't know. You know, he's writing great stuff, but he's his own worst critic. I'm telling you. Yeah, must just give him anxiety. He did not want to be the singer. He's always like said he 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 does not like his his stuff. You know. Yeah. As genius as it is, he doesn't like it. You know, but that's kind of difficult. He, I wish he felt he had the confidence to just do whatever it is he wanted. Put out an album of him playing bar tunes in the steakhouse. You know, whatever right. it is, just to just to create and feel the satisfaction of putting something out there that, you know, a few people care about. I don't know. It's just my own personal uh, opinion. I should shut up. It doesn't matter what I think. <laughs> no, I mean, but I think, like I said, they're so him and my, my brother both, and, and me to a degree, and I, I think to achieve even the level of success that we achieved in Sugar Bomb and, and it's yeah. we don't want to do anything less than what we perceive is yeah. that is great, you know. I hear you. Or that we're extremely proud of, you know, which is a constant chase, you know. You, yeah. you never can't catch that, you know. Yeah, no, I know. Things are over, I guess. You gotta build it back up just like you did with your career. You know? Build up yeah. something new, I guess. Okay, well, i got to throw out a couple more questions from Paul before I forget. Number one, he and I want to know why your first album is on iTunes anymore. Well, because that was done on the first indie label, Rainmaker Records. Um, and when But it was on there at one time, day. right? I don't know. Oh, he thought it was. They, don't, they, they sold it, the rights to that to RCA. Okay. 
So if it's not on there, it has something to do with RCA. Now, the other thing about that, though, that might have something to do with it, is that half, at least half, if not more than half, of the songs that are on Taste Like Sugar are also uh-huh. on Bully. Yeah, I noticed. Um, I noticed, yeah. So that was... But aren't they reworked? Why that? Are they, yeah, you know, reworked. reproduced? Okay. RCA was already looking at us and thinking about signing us when our indie yeah. label said, well, we're going to go ahead and... Because we had to deal with our indie label, but if we got signed to a major, that we would sign a management deal with them. Okay. So their main interest was getting a sign. They didn't really want to be a label. They just wanted to use their label. They have a label and um, a management company. Okay. And they used the label to get, so we do an album, Put it. we're going to put this on the shelves. You better hurry and make a decision. So they pushed RCA to hurry up. Make, so it went out on the shelves. It was out on the shelves for probably less than a week. And RCA said, okay, put it off the shelves. We'll find them. They didn't want those songs getting out to the public yet. Okay. Does that make sense? They wanted yeah. to re-record those songs right, and release right. them under the RCA. Yeah, got it. Yep, that makes sense. So okay. That's probably why it's not on. Uh, okay. He also asked, you mentioned, uh, you listed off a bunch of influences earlier, and I, those are all some of my favorite bands too, Squeeze and Oingo Boingo and stuff. He said specifically that he feels like sometimes he hears a little ELO in some of oh, your harmonies sure. and stuff. Were you, uh, I mean, was that conscious while you were, when you're creating music, are you thinking about bands like ELO, or is it just, I like them, and, well, how does that work, no. exactly? I mean, so, the thing about Sugarbomb, when we went in on it, we definitely have our influences, but formula-wise, we made it a rule from the beginning that we weren't going to try to sound like anybody else. Except Queen on After All. I don't mean to be, that wasn't meant to be snarky, but every write-up of Bully, of well, you guys, everything, says that After All is a Queen, like, cover, basically. That one was specifically written by Les, so he was probably uh, influenced, so I couldn't answer for that one. Sure, um, sure. But I'm as a band, you know, everything yeah. that we collaborated on, it was more of... You know, let's not try to predetermine a sound. Let's okay. just do what we like and what we think. Yeah, there you good. go. Good. Okay. And that's kind of what we did, you know. I want to ask you some of these typical questions that I ask a lot of people. Can you remember, besides Kenny Aronoff, who I think that's so killer that you are actually even friendly with him, can you think of a time when during your, you know, the height of your 
musical career? Did you ever meet any heroes or get to, I don't know, play with someone or anything? What was like the height of fame? You know, what what kind of heroes did you meet? I almost got in a fight with Matthew McConaughey twice. You did? But I what? Was, but I, I wouldn't say he was a hero of mine. No. Yeah, actually. Yeah, he didn't like How did that happen? We were just at uh, Bar Marmont in L.A. Um, She was there and very inebriated. And actually, everybody was, they were closing the bar and everybody was leaving. And we had seen him across the bar. It was me and, I don't know if all of us were there. I know me and my brother, Greg, Greg was there. I don't know if Les was there. Unless my might have been, he usually went to the gay part of town to hang out in the gay clubs. But everybody, I'd gone to the bathroom when I came back. They were kind of kicking everybody out. And there's a when you come out of Bar Mama, you have to go up some stairs and then kind of around to the right. And he was kind of just standing at the top of the stairs, staring at me, you know. And, uh-huh. and I, uh, I felt obligated to say something. And I was like, "Are you okay? I can't, I can't remember." But he, you know, he just kind of. Looked at me and I don't even remember what he said. Made some snarky comment and okay. And I just I said whatever, man. And he just patted him on the on the shoulder and uh-huh. continued on the left. Well, then about two weeks later, we were at the same bar. We we only had Sunday nights off. This is while we were recording Bully. Okay. And um, we were in the same bar and I was talking to this Hawaiian hot Hawaiian chick. Nice. And he walked up. And she introduced, she said, hey, have you met Matt, Matthew? And um, I said, yeah, I actually ran into him a couple of weeks ago. I said, I don't know if you remember, you were pretty drunk. And he goes, no, I was here. And I went, that's what I said, you were here. And he, and he, and he pointed his head, and, and he said, no, I was here. Oh, and oh, I, I get it. So I, so I go, oh, so you meant to be a jerk, you know. And, <laughs> which kind of started, you know, uh-huh. To eat things up, and he didn't like the fact that this this girl that he was interested in was talking with me, and and he had a couple of friends kind of jump up, and and my friends jumped up, and you know it never got into anything. And I called him Matt, and he got really, my name is Matthew, and then I called him Bongo Boy, and really, and Matt. yes, yeah. and and then to be honest, then could you have left, taken him? And we Do you think thought, you could have taken Matthew? I oh, Matt. Yeah, sure. Really? Yes. I studying martial arts since I was eight years old. Oh, I yes. I trained, yeah, I mean, that's one thing I was doing in Japan, and I lived in Hong Kong for a year training MMA, but that was after the fact, <laughs> but I still train now. I mean, I don't, you know, I, would, I probably, I mean, I don't know. I, it crossed my mind. It would have been funny, you know. Totally. Uh, I would, but we, we just thought it was hilarious, you know. When we, on the drive home, we were all just really laughing that, and Greg, he thought it was the funniest thing in the world that, you know, he that Matthew McConaughey. I got, you yeah. know, got him all upset, you know. Yeah, no kidding. I thought it was funny. I was, well, the guy was being a jerk, you know. I was yeah. trying to be cool. I said, look, we're both from Texas. Just chill out, you know. But, yeah. But he was, that is great. You know. Wow. But that was that was a good story. I'm trying to think if there was others. There was a real funny one when we were touring with Cheap Trick. Because Les, now... What's the guitarist name for Cheap Shirt, Rick? Something? Rick Nielsen. Rick Nielsen. So he's kind of, he is the main guy. He's the one that talks. Yep. You know, he has his little staircase on the front of the stage, and he, you know, warned us, don't you touch my stairs, you know. 
Um, okay. Well, Les, Les, his, you know, when he was in, he, actually Rick Nielsen had produced a band Les was in. I think it might have been Josie Jones and Royham. And Les used to always tell us the story, and we never believed it, that Rick gave him a bunch of money to go out and buy some Coke for him. And Les went out, and I, I'm not even, this might have been in Chicago or something, I can't remember. So, and Les went out and bought a baggie of Coke for Rick Nielsen, and, and he brought it back to the studio, and it turned out to be baking powder or something. Uh-huh. And we we always like, yeah, sure. Well, right. The first night we played with Cheap Trick, and we, we did our, you know, set, and then they come out, play a couple songs, and then Rick Nielsen says, you know, what do y'all think of that band Sugar Bomb? That lead singer owes me some money from a bad drug deal a few years ago. On the microphone. Really? And we all just looked at each other like, holy shit, he's telling the truth. You know? What? Yeah, it was, it was pretty good. We couldn't believe it. We were like, wow. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I kind of don't want to think about Rick Nielsen doing coke at this stage. Oh, he, he, he was still doing it back then. He'd have it lined up on the side of the stage. He'd just oh. come over and do a line and then go back on stage. Oh, that is so sad. Oh, yeah. come on. I mean, you know, I know <laughs> drugs are part parcel of rock life, but you'd think as a 50-whatever-year-old man he was at the time, he might have grown out of that. Oh, wow. Great story. Oh, that's juice, man. I love that. Yeah. Love that. That's a good one. Okay. Okay, final two questions. What's your biggest regret? And then what is just your tastiest memory of your musical life? A particularly great show... I don't know, somebody, something someone said, a hot groupie, it could be anything. But what is, like, the best memory, and what is just your biggest regret? Well, the biggest regret, like I said before, I, I, is the fact that we never got to. Yeah, that's right, together. you mentioned that. Okay. For sure, that's it. Um, as far as, I had, there's so many good memories. You know, playing, we did a private show for Clive Davis in New York. Um, I can't believe you just said you that. Know, he comes up so often on here, and but mm-hmm. most of the time the people who bring him up have a bad experience. Like he dropped well, them, he, or he didn't want to, yeah. them to put out the album they wanted to put out, or he just didn't get it, yeah. or whatever. That was after we got dropped by RCA, and then when he had joined up with that label, um, I can't remember the name of the label now, but they're... Jay, wasn't it just Jay? It was Jay Records, and they had just yeah. come out with Maroon 5, which yeah. the same producer that did Sugar Bomb makes that album. You know, it really is a small, somewhat of a small world, you know, at the top there. He passed on us. Mm-hmm. His partner that started Jay Records with, I can't remember his name, but he was a huge Sugar Bomb fan. He wanted to sign us, but, Jay, uh, but yeah, Clive passed on us. But that right. was a good one. Also, when we first pulled into Times Square, when we first got... When we, went, when we went to play the showcase for RCA, and they pick us up in a limousine at the airport, of course, we've got all this equipment with us, so it wasn't so glamorous because we're crammed in a limousine, all stuffed uh-huh. in there with our equipment. But we pull into Times Square, go, you know, go into the DMG building, and we get out of Times we get out of the limousine, and there's all these people taking pictures. And somebody walks up to me. I don't know if you've seen pictures of me, but I'm, you know, me and my brother are bald. And okay. Yeah, to me and that. said, uh, "Are you the Smashing Pumpkins?" <laughs> like, no, we're not the Smashing Pumpkins. Yes. Um, that was a good memory. I became friends with the drummer for Everclear, and oh really? We were going. 
Yeah, if we were driving in this convertible BMW in Hollywood, going to the Hollywood Bowl to see Third Eye Blind, and we were backstage hanging out, and um, I just felt like, you know, I made it. I had this sense, even when Hello came out, you know, I had this sense of I did it. I made it. You know, yeah. It's over. I'm yeah. Like, I'm there. I made it yeah. to the show. You know, I made it to the. I climbed the mountain. I'm I'm on top. You know. Right. Even my brother would, you know, being negative as he is, be like, "Well, what if something happens?" I'm like, "Nothing can happen. They're already uh, one and a half million in. What's going to happen?" Right. Well, nine eleven happened. You know. Oh gosh. I was like, "Well, couldn't have seen that coming." But um, uh, you know, I've learned over the years after that, and yeah, you know, I started my own uh, civil engineering company, which when I started that, then the housing market crashed. Yeah. Then I moved to Japan. I'm doing music over there. A tsunami and earthquake happened. So it's like yeah. I just keep, you know, trying stuff. And, I, and I, you know, I, I don't let it get me down. I just keep going, you know. Yeah. Well, I think that's amazing. I mean, you're a total survivor. There you have it, Michael Harville. Can you believe some of those stories? That kind of breaks my heart about Rick Nielsen, honestly. Maybe I'm just too big of a prude, I don't know. But I love the Matthew McConaughey story. He sounds like kind of a douche, and that doesn't really surprise me, to be honest. Anyway, huge thanks to Michael for talking to me. Thank you, Michael. And huge thanks to Paul Underwood for reminding me what a great band Sugar Bomb is. I'm so grateful. And thanks to everyone else who listens, too. Feel free to send me more requests. I love it. By the way... At the very beginning of this conversation, Michael mentioned that his brother was putting out an album, and we played a little bit of it. His brother's band is called Fear the Radio. The album's called Love, Power, Corruption. It is so good. I went ahead and bought it, and I hope that you guys, as always, if you hear music on these podcasts that you are unfamiliar with, or you're reminded how great these guys are, please go out and support them and buy their stuff. I love it that Fear the Radio album, so I went ahead and bought it. All right, as I mentioned, feel free to send us requests. You can find us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can send me an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. I admit, I don't really know what I'm doing on Twitter, so I'm not on there very much. Huge thank you to Yan, the man, Makevich, for producing the podcast as always. Thanks to everyone who listens. Please write us a, re- uh, a review in iTunes if you don't mind and subscribe to the podcast. We come out every Tuesday with new episodes. We will see you next week. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>